time, and we're back again with movie time, and we hope that y'all had a great uh, rest of the week, and we are coming up onto a fabulous uh, new week, and one week before our Thanksgiving uh, time. So, and with us tonight, we have our wonderful uh, co-host who is coming in to take, uh, to, at the moment, fill in for Kente, who is off on others. It's Olaf Barbosa. Hey, Olaf, how you doing? I am doing great. It's like, and uh, really excited to be here with you tonight, and and uh, let's see how this show goes. Most definitely, and uh, I, it's like I'm all excited because we finally have got our guest, Mr. Todd Berger. How are you doing, Todd? Great. How are you guys? Doing awesome. It's like weather decided that it wanted to rain today. Oh, bummer. Hey, what can you ha- uh, what can you say? Canadian and American weather. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, I want to move uh, it's uh, up towards uh, the ways back again sometimes, but sometimes I'm like, yes, thank you for <laughs> the midways. But Toronto and New York tend to yeah. have similar weather. For and sure. So, Todd, can you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Uh, yeah, I'm an independent producer. Um based in New York, mostly of uh, television. Um, My background was uh, I worked at a large talent agency uh, in Los Angeles called William Morris Agency for about 10 years, uh, representing actors, writers, directors, and producers. Mm -hmm. And for the last seven years, um, I've been working um, as a consultant for various media companies, helping them... um, get a better understanding of film, television, music, um, distribution, content, and finance business. So a little of everything. But right now, yeah, a big focus for me now is um, developing and producing TV series. So how do you feel that the TV and and entertainment medium has changed over the years? And how has it been chosen to be made? Yeah, it's been great lately because there are more and more distribution platforms and channels out there than there have ever been before. I actually counted the other day. Uh, In the U.S. alone, there's 65 networks um, that are doing scripted programming um, and another dozen or so that are also doing non-scripted programming. So that includes um, animation, uh, talk shows, variety shows, game shows, scripted dramas, scripted comedies. So there's a lot of platforms out there, um, more than ever before. Sorry, you just cut out for a second. I, oh, sorry. I said that it's so uh, so diverse TV. It's like it's actually having a really golden age right now rising through. Yeah, it is. They're kind of calling this the next golden age of television. Um and it's really interesting, and I think a lot of it is because there are so many distribution platforms available, and a lot of film writers and directors and producers um, are looking at television as, a, as a, a, a really good way to tell some of the stories that they used to tell in the movie business, but because the movie business has changed so much, um, there aren't a lot of studios and financiers making those kind of mid-range um, drama films uh, that used to be prevalent in the past. Now, for the most part, you'll see you know a big superhero movie or a big comedy 
come out of the seven movie studios. And then at typically this time of year through December, they'll release um, more of what they'll call, they'll call their specialty fair. You know, their, their dramas that they want to um, be recognized with Academy Award nominations. Very cool. So it's really going uh, now through a more refined uh, refined cycle, or do you find that it's like over the years and times that it's actually remained in cycle the same? It's just the how well, often, how many, and how often. Yeah, I think because the movie business started to change about fifteen years ago. Um, back then, there were a few more studios, and they were making twice as many films. Um, and then it started to shift a little bit when they focused on bigger budget movies. So obviously they only have a limited amount of money to spend, uh, uh, you know, on films. So if they would make a movie for 150 million, it means they couldn't make three movies at 50 million. So they started to spend more and more on each film and more and more to market, um, and get the word out on each film. So in essence, it, it meant that they couldn't not make as many films as they used to. And so a lot of the storytellers from the film business have moved to television because there are so many more opportunities available to them. And a bunch of great avenues too. What, by the way, what kind of budgets are you in genres? Are you usually comfortable working with? Are there like any that you want to avoid entirely? Um, no, for TV, typically a budget for a drama series is anywhere from $2 million an episode to $5 million an episode. Um, most new shows are in the $3 million an episode range. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be a little less, they could be a minimum, little more, but that's kind of a, an average. Um, so- a lo- again, a lot depends on, um, you know, if it's a period drama like um, Outlander. Mad yeah, or if it's a big kind of sword and sandals thing like Outlander or Game of Thrones, which are much more expensive to produce um, than a show like Criminal Minds or NCIS, which are more kind of what are called procedural shows, where there's a you know a, a crew or a team that's that's assembled to solve a case every week. And it's more of an ensemble core cast as opposed to ones where they have to constantly introduce others. Yeah. So there's kind of a, um, you know, if there's, there's two structures. One is, um, a, well, there's three structures. One is kind of a single lead show where you've got one guy or girl, like in the closer, um, mm-hmm. who's kind of your main character, but they will have supporting characters around them to kind of help solve the cases. And then there's shows like NCIS, which is a team um, of people. And then there are shows like Castle or Bones, which are kind of um, co-lead, male-female. Very true. And can you – I know that television finance is also slightly different than film finance because it's uh, requiring for the money for a season versus a single uh, one-off project and and you're dealing with also networks as well can you talk a little bit about like the different kinds of financing that is dealt with and how tax structures and stuff like that yep so um in the united states in tv there has been a studio system in place since the beginning where you know studios like warner brothers or sony or paramount or or fox um 
will develop and own um, television series and partner with various networks like ABC, NBC, CBS, um, who typically will just pay a license fee. They'll pay a, you know, X number of dollars to run the show so many times during the year. But the network typically doesn't own the show. The studio owns the show. Mm-hmm. What's happened recently with networks like HBO and Showtime is they're both this, the network and the studio. So they'll fund the development and the production of the show for their own air. Mm-hmm. And so they'll own everything completely by themselves and not work with an outside studio. Um, that's changed a little bit in the last few years. Um, now most of the studios are working with places like HBO and Showtime mm-hmm. to develop programming because the shows are really expensive. So it's it's a uh, lessens the risk if a place um, if one of those networks partners with a, a studio. Um, what's happened in the last few years has been very interesting in that there are now a number of independent mini studios, we'll call them, or financiers mm-hmm. who, are, who are getting into the television business um, and funding and owning shows. And some of this is driven uh, out of Canada um, with shows like Rookie Blue or Flashpoint. And some of them, uh, some of this is driven out of the UK um, with shows like Humans, mm-hmm. um, which was on AMC this year. So what's happening is there's shows that are being developed and commissioned outside the states that are coming back to the U.S. market um, as an acquisition. So the network I- like AMC will look at a show like Humans, which mm-hmm. was developed by Channel Four in the UK. Um, and they'll say, oh, wow, that show's really cool. That could work for our audience. And they'll pay a flat license fee for it to be able to air it in the United States. But they didn't have much involvement in terms of developing it or being involved with creative. Very, uh, very interesting, because also one of the things I wanted to know is with the licensing fees and the reciprocal agreements now between all countries, now that it's starting to become co-productions, and is it starting to become easier to engage in content between, uh, like do exchanges between the states and other countries with their licensing uh, of episodes yeah yeah it is there's um in the past in the united states if you ever had a um a non-american who was in a lead role it was very challenging to get um ratings or to get a network to um to buy into that idea because everybody here was so conditioned on having to have an american character an american voice on a show and that's changed a lot over the last 10 years um and especially in the last like three to four with, um, you know, BBC America and Sundance Channel um, and some of these other networks that are PBS mm-hmm. uh, that were bringing on um, mostly British dramas, but also Australian dramas, New Zealand dramas, Canadian dramas, um, bringing those shows to the American audience for the first time. And, and now if you go on Netflix um, there are so many great British dramas available. Um, that's why a lot of people subscribe is to be able to see some really terrific television that's being done around the world. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so it's also being able to get the market to be able to expand as well. Yeah. And also considering that there's more and more non-Americans in America than ever before, and that number is growing. And a mm-hmm. lot of people want to see some of their homegrown content. And, and other people are just curious. You know? Yeah, it seems that there's a quite a few British actors that are coming in and you know they're they do the American accents so well uh, it's you don't realize that they're British until you see them on a uh, interview show somewhere and like wow I didn't know he right. was British like if you remember the show The Wire on HBO um, one of the lead characters was uh, the character's name was Stringer Bell and it was played by a British actor named Idris Elba. And you had no idea he had a Cockney British accent until you heard him interviewed. Right. And then it kind of throws you for a loop because you're like, wow. Yeah. And there's a lot, you know, Hugh Laurie on House. And there's a lot of examples of, um, of great British Australian actors um, now being on shows in the States and either playing an American or, or playing someone from their native country. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. And it's like, so therefore it's also changed the face of television. If we can also jump for one uh, a little moment back down also to the times of the being of packaging agent. And it's like, I'm sure that this has been actually a bonus in terms of the television industry as well. Because now putting together the package is also a, uh, a lot different than it used to be. Um, how do you feel that agents are a vital part in terms of this, uh, like with the packaging agent? Can you define a little bit more about it? And yeah, you- um, I'll tell you what I did and, and kind of what agents today are doing. And it's not too dissimilar. It's just changed a little bit. So when I was um, at William Morris, you know, we typically represented uh, writers and producers, directors, actors, authors, um, formats from overseas and, 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 you know, magazine articles, life rights, pretty much anything that could be developed, um, as uh, intellectual property. So we, every week we would have meetings multiple times a week and go through the, um, the new projects that were coming along, uh, what we thought of them, if we felt that they were saleable and if so, to what networks, um, and then we'd look to see what assets we had and what clients we had internally. So if we had a, a you know a young writer, a young film writer who'd never done TV, TV before, we'd try to put he or she with a established television showrunner, or we'd try to put them with a television producer. Um, or if there was a TV actor who had a deal at a network, um, we would look to see what material we had that we could kind of package with that piece of talent. Um, so there was always, you're always looking at different opportunities for the clients that you had and for the agency's clients. And, and it, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say today, that's, it, that's pretty much what, what agencies are doing um, today as well is really trying to service their existing clients and figure out how to, how to, pair some of their clients together with each other to get shows on the air. So for example, if you're repped at CAA, 
um, they'll, you know, if you're a young writer or an established writer, they'll look at your material and they'll look to see if there's any, you know, showrunners or directors or producers or talent that they have in-house that they can package you with and then bring that entire package to a network. And packaging has become even more and more important because there's so many projects that are being pitched and the networks are always looking for kind of the next big thing. Not only the next big idea, but the next big package. Like, oh, it's got so-and-so attached as a showrunner and so-and-so attached as an actor and maybe so-and-so as a director. And it makes it that much more exciting to the network, but also potentially gives you the opportunity to to um, get the show in production and on the air if it's a strong enough package. So what are the, some of the common mistakes and good things that people have done while pitching to you their projects? Um, you know, typically if somebody's a newer writer, they don't know pitching's really hard, whether it's pitching to a producer or an executive or um an actor. It's it really takes some some time to kind of hone the craft and I always tell people less is more. It's really important to kind of get three or four things across. One is what's the show? The second is who are the main characters? The third is, what's our way in to the world? And the fourth is, what's going to happen every week in the series? Mm-hmm. Those are really the most important things that uh, uh, any buyer um, or creative person is going to want to hear. Because they're the four most simple things when you think about the um, basis for a television show. Absolutely. And... So what a lot of people do, if if they don't know, is they'll... Maybe they'll pitch the whole pilot, one act after another after another. Ah. Uh, or they'll focus, a- yeah, or they'll focus too much on one or two of the main characters, but not the supporting characters. Or they won't have a really clear idea about what happens in episode two or episode five. Very uh, cool, because it's like they uh, what you're looking for them to then do is bridge a 13-episode or 12-episode package together in that. So it's much different what the actual materials that you would want to see that would entice you working with them. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's basically two different kinds of shows. There's a show that's a um, kind of episodic case of the week um, mm-hmm. where there's a clear... Ver- a very clear beginning, middle, and an end to each episode. Um, And that, you know, you don't have to watch every single episode to know what's going on. That is called a serialized show. You know, Mm -hmm. something like Game of Thrones or um, Lost, where every episode is kind of linked to each other. And you really need to, to... watch all the episodes to have a better understanding of what's going on. So in, uh, so when they're actually talking about it, they're talking about arcing each one of the episodes into one another as opposed to other ones that it's individual episodics. Right. And uh, is it different? Uh, it's like uh, for the television industry, and I know that also in cal- places like California, for example, you know, agents uh, are the ones who are negotiating for this and, uh, as well. But also in California, places like that, um, managers and lawyers are 
losing the, uh, the ability to be able to negotiate for their clients any longer. It's a different type structure. Are, do you think that New York and other states like that are going to fall in line with that? And therefore, like a pack, they'll have to be like a packaging agent in every lawyer's office? Um, I'm not sure. I, you know, typically right now the agent is the one who is putting the pieces in place. Um, and you know, setting up the network meetings and then negotiating the deal. Uh, if a client also has a lawyer, the lawyer gets involved in the actual negotiation of the deal. Whereas most managers, um, they'll be, around to advise their clients on the deal and, and the negotiation, but they aren't actually negotiating the deals themselves. It's typically the agent or the lawyer that's mm -hmm. doing that. And that's, that's in California and New York and, and pretty much uh, most places. There are managers that do both, um, mm -hmm. but typically they are really not supposed to. So uh, it's kept in each one of their separate categories now. So it Correct. really has been categorized in there yep. and also so just going back one step there also um so if somebody is coming to you with a television project not only should they have the episodics what materials would you want to actually see physically when they are doing the pitch to you well it depends if it's a newer writer who's never written for television before um it might be good for them to write the pilot on spec Mm -hmm. to show that they've got a clear understanding of a how to write and b what the show is mm -hmm. um if they've written some film scripts before and they've gotten a good response and they've never written television they may be able to um just go try to pitch their idea but it's definitely important for them to have you know something written either a you know, a full script or a treatment or a synopsis, and they should absolutely um, make sure they register everything with the Writers Guild because mm -hmm. it really protects them uh, going forward with any conversations they're going to have. And the more material they have, um, the better. So uh, also if they have any visuals as well, anything that will help to sell the actual story, as well storyboarding um what do you think about also a proof of concept trailers uh that's an interesting question there are um on the non-scripted side that's typically how a lot of people um sell shows is with what's called a sizzle uh-huh uh you know they'll, they'll shoot a anywhere from two to five minute sizzle reel on what the show looks like what the character is going to be etc uh it's harder and more expensive to do that in scripted but um we sold a show um, called The Pinkertons that was based on a, a Pinkerton detective agency of the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And we cut together a sizzle reel that was basically made up of scenes from other movies and TV shows. And we only mm -hmm. used it as a sales tool. It never aired anywhere on the internet or anywhere else. It was just a sales tool to the U.S. stations as we were having conversations with them so they could get a better understanding of what visually the show is going to look like. So there are definitely people that do things like that. It's called a ripomatic. Mm -hmm. They'll take scenes from other movies or TV shows and cobble them together just to solely use as a sales tool. Very cool. It's like, yeah. And uh, it 
does though require though a lot of licensing of that material to if it were if it were ever to air but for that particular purpose it's strictly a sales agent right. tool or a business agent tool yes it's like, you know, also a lot of television is starting to become very adaptive of novels and tell and a lot of things like for example outlander who is based on diana gabaldon's series there's also um quite a few uh, series like game of thrones that was yep. based uh, on that george walking martin. dead yep. yes george martin uh, and the list goes on and on um do you feel that there's starting to become a trend of more picking up adaptations towards making them into series uh, or do you feel that there's a new trend coming forward of taking your uh, a original novel and throwing it into a series or is more original work starting to emerge right uh there are i think most networks now and studios will tell you that more than half of their development is based on some underlying ip a book a comic book a graphic novel um something because they feel Rightly so, in my opinion, that um, well, hey, sometimes there's just great material out there, but if there's something that's already got a fan base, um, why not try to tap into that fan base Definitely. when you're developing something? So they're really looking at, um, at some of this underlying IP. We are producing a show right now for sci-fi that's based on a graphic novel mm -hmm. called Winona Earp. And it's basically the story of Wyatt Earp's great-great-granddaughter, who's a contemporary um, U.S. Marshal who fights demons and monsters. So it's kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Justified. Very cool. Yeah, and it's, and it's based on this graphic novel that was published about eight years ago from this publishing company, IDW, who's the third largest comic book publisher in the U.S., and we always liked the book and the story. And when we found a writer to help develop it, having that source material was very helpful. And then when we went to the networks to, to talk about it, again, we showed them the books and we saw how important it was to have, um, have the books with us to get them excited about the project. And so you would suggest having the materials that it's source-based coming in with you? Yeah. In yeah. there. Yep. Um, is the licensing for that material already done at that point in time, or is it a pitch idea and then uh, the licensing rights for? Yeah, typically, the um, typically a producer or a studio will option something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a book, a, a series of books, a format from another country, something, and then they'll develop it. Uh, with a writer usually, and then they'll go out and pitch it to a network. So uh, when it's coming from the writer's stage, it's like it should have the clearances of already having the rights to the novel? Yeah, or... if there's a writer who found a book that, that he or she loves, they should try to, well, they'll need to get the rights before they spend any time developing something. It's not a good idea to to develop a, a pitch of, of a film or television project based on a book or a property that you don't control and then hopefully it's like it, at that point in time they have an, uh, the controls of it to be able to give it to the company who can therefore get it to the networks yep 
so basically when you're coming in, you're really coming in at the beginning of a project. Yeah, at the absolute very beginning. Is that yeah. where you feel most comfortable or do you feel once it's actually had a little bit of gas cooking with it? Uh, I like being involved early on because it's helped. It, it's 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 fun, but challenging to try to help put all the pieces in place. Um, you know, you find the first writer, you develop the material, you find a broadcast partner. Um, and then from there, it's really, you know, developing the script and or subsequent episodes or a, what's called a series Bible. If, if a network wants to kind of take a deeper dive in what the show is going to be, um, mm -hmm. especially if it's something that's very serialized and has a big mythology to it. Um, then typically they're going to want to see a, you know, a, a Bible, which is anywhere from 10 to 30 pages um, that, that the writer and the producer put together that really kind of spell out, you know, where the show is going to go in season one, break it down by episodes, kind of what's going to happen each week. Um, so that's all fun. And then, you know, finding the financing is something I really enjoy. Um, whether it's from traditional studio partners or non-traditional financiers or international partners. Um, and then when the show's going, that's the most exciting part. You know, when you're, you're, you're reading scripts and you're giving notes on cuts and you're going to the set and you're, you know, you're doing casting and all that stuff is, is really a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's a, it, it sounds like it's a completely different feel. Also, in terms of the the series themselves, they also go through a series of directors, or do you usually like to work with, you know, one or two that are pretty consistent on the show? Yeah, typically on dramas, you'll, um, it depends on how you're going to shoot your series, but typically you'll use um, one director. Mm -hmm. Um for an episode and then you'll use someone else for the next episode and then someone else for the next episode. And if you like somebody, you'll bring them back for multiple episodes, but for a one hour show, um, you're usually using multiple directors for the whole season. Cause a lot of times, a lot of the talent is also starting to go behind the camera as well. Um, do you feel that this is a positive trend or do you feel like, it, okay. Um, it can harm a show because as they're becoming a more executive producer or person in the behind the scenes that is suffering the in front of the scenes. I actually think it's okay. It depends when, um, when the actor is going to be directing, like uh, for a first year show, if there's a lead actor and they've never directed before, they probably shouldn't be directing an episode in season one, but once the show's kind of up and running and everybody finds out what's working and what isn't working, um, then I think it's great if they want to come in and direct an episode or two in the second season or the third season. Cause then by, you know, by then you typically know how the crew's working with each other. And if, if the production is making its days and if everything's kind of running smoothly, um, you know, there are some actors who have directed a lot of episodes of television. So maybe, in those cases, it does make sense for them to come in to season one to direct an episode. It's really kind of a case-by-case -case situation, but there's a lot more actors now that are becoming directors, and they're really good. Very cool. And it's like, so they're actually finding their way, as well as executive producers within the show, in order to be able to... Is that a use of being able to have the actor so that 
um, they have more motivation to stay on the show because of the whole pull of other episodics as well as also. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, there's some actors who have no interest in directing at all. And there's others who are really um, keen to do it and want to do it. So just finding, you know, having conversations with each of them to see what makes the most sense, you know, for the show and for them. Mm -hmm. How do you feel, though, about working with both known or unknown talent? Like, do you think that it benefits or harms a show? It all depends. I mean, we've had, um, you know, on the show we're doing right now, none of our actors are are well-known stars, per se. They've all worked, but none of them Mm -hmm. are names. Um, And it's great. They're so, so nice and so much fun to bring around and so glad to have the opportunity um, and that's always really nice. It's, you know, once in a while you'll you'll come across someone or work with someone who's been in the business for a long time and they're maybe a little jaded and they've got a different kind of an attitude and they could be a little more challenging to deal with than some of the um, people who aren't as well known yet. So it actually gives them a fresh start. And do you find, though, also that they, because with episodic television that it's like it's a lot easier to break in as a lesser known person? Um, it can be. I mean, you know, it's typically um, if you're an up and coming actor, let's say, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're and you're at a small, very small agency and you're getting out for one line roles or extra roles. There's so much television being produced. It's a great way to to kind of get out there and try to you know, book some jobs. Yep. And the, it's like, cause I'm finding that also tele- television this day and age does make somewhat of a, a star and helps them to, it's like, is there more of a leeway also in the television industry for actors to be able to cross over genres? Because a lot of times yeah, there definitely yeah. is. Um, in the past, you were either a film star or you were a TV star, and there was a very clear line between the two. And if you wanted to be considered a real movie star, you wouldn't do TV. Unless, of course, you started in television and crossed over like Bruce Willis or Tom Hanks or Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen or very, very long list of, of actors and actresses who all started their career in TV and became huge movie stars. Um, It was more back then the mid-level actors who were trying to become bigger movie stars. The second they would go do television, the perception was that their career was over. And that's Mm -hmm. completely different now. You've got movie stars like Kevin Spacey and Kevin Bacon and, um, you know, Kira Sedgwick and a lot of people who are pretty well-known movie stars who are going into the television business because there's, there's really good um, projects being developed. And it actually enhances, it kind of is now marrying hand in hand with each other. Yeah, exactly. Cause now, um, you know, you could do a really prestigious television show and you could do a movie or a play and that kind of fills out your whole year. Um, and it's much more, um, accepted than it has been in the past. In fact, it's encouraged. Is a it lot also, of people who yeah. are doing television are looking to do movies and vice versa. Interesting. And also, does it follow in terms of like a social media um, 
perspective on it as well. It's like, does do you find that it's like a, the it then follows like a tweet following or it just uh, grows a life of its own? Well, it's a good question. I think that there are definitely people who have um, a big social media presence who are in demand on some television projects and film projects because the marketers and the studios know that those people will be out there talking about their episode that they're doing or the movie that they're doing in the hopes that their fan base will tune in or buy a ticket. So there's more of that happening, but typically people get roles in things because of their talent. So now it's not just becoming the star-driven system in the in there. It's also becoming a social system that's allowing for bit. new faces. Yep, a little bit. There's new faces. There's new voices. There's new people who um, may not be quote-unquote actors, but they're personalities, and they have a voice and a following. And some of them are definitely now booking roles in films and TV shows, and and some are even developing their own projects. And also, it's like because of, the, of that, it's now also opening up more channels for them in terms of distribution, such yes. as. Yes, completely. And, you know, some of these people who have their own shows on YouTube that, you know, maybe they have 8 million or 10 million followers. That's a big number. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of marketers want to reach those people. Um, and a lot of. You know, studio network executives are trying to tap into that, you know, kind of 18 to 34 year old or 12 to 24 year old crowd. And so they feel like maybe they cast that person who has the following and role and it helps, you know, drive awareness, drive eyeballs um, in the project. And it also allows for the show as well to have more legs because in today's day and age, it's like, is it also in television very much about multi-platforming it as well and multi-streamings and, yeah, and game development as well? Yeah, it can be for the right project. You know, I mean, I think anything that's comic book based, um, you know, that content could live on a digital platform it could maybe be developed into a game, of a console game or a mobile game. Um, it gives you a lot of possibilities. You know, if it's kind of a traditional sitcom, there may not be a video game that you're developing um, or digital content that's out there. But um, I know there's a lot of platforms that are, um, you know, e emerging like Vimeo or CISO where they're doing short form comedy or longer form comedy. Um, and that kind of content can work very well if it's um, cut into smaller segments and people can consume it on their various portable devices. So, yeah, there's a lot of that happening now. Um, not every show. It doesn't work for every show. It's really kind of a case by case. Mm hmm. And so things like Machinima, VOD, all of that, it's like with it changing that multi-platforming thing, it's like it becoming quite a trend. Is it actually then revamping the distribution model of how television comes out to people? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's it's definitely changed the game because there are these, you know, kind of new distribution platforms where people are consuming content. And so now there's content creators and developers who are developing content for those platforms specifically, um, 
And it's definitely changed the game because, you know, those platforms weren't around five years ago for the most part. And now they are and they're pretty vibrant and there's more advertisers that are moving their media dollars to those platforms than ever before. And once that's ha that happens, that's really where the tipping point starts. Um, you, you, you're seeing more and more media dollars move away from traditional television into digital. Mm -hmm. And once it's moved away, it's never coming back. You know, because if you look at trends, the, 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 the audience levels are only growing in the digital space and they're decreasing in the traditional TV space. So pretty soon you're going to see Machinima live right next to ABC on your dial. Very and that happened 15 years ago with basic cable. Yeah. You know, when basic cable was starting getting original programming, everybody thought it was a joke and they were going to make really bad content. And the more and more people started to watch and the more and more um, content was out there, that audience just kept growing and growing and growing. Do you have... And it took away from the U.S. networks. They were the only game in town for 40 years. Do you have kind of an idea of when you think, uh, in other words, how long, in other words, is this something that's in the next five years you're going to see the machinima being right next to it? Yeah, I think the next three to five years. Okay. Well, it already is for some people. I mean, if you're a 16-year-old, you're probably not watching many shows on ABC, but you may be watching a lot more on on Machinima or Awesomeness TV or Vimeo. Mm -hmm. That's where you're getting a lot of your content right now. And YouTube and oh. all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, and YouTube. And most of the people that watch broadcast TV are still like 40-plus because that's what they're used to. The younger people now, they're not watching TV. They're they're really consuming content on, you know, various digital platforms. It could be Hulu or Netflix or Amazon, or it could be, you know, YouTube or Awesomeness or some of these other kind of digital channels. But I don't know a single 24-year-old that has cable. Well, because a lot of them, it's like they're seeing that also a lot of shows are being specifically made for that content. Correct. And, and they're savvy enough to know how to work the internet to find the stuff that they want to see. And is that, again, then changing the way that uh, television is being viewed? Because it's like now being on a digital platform with so many opportunities to be able to go out there. It's like, it, is it hard, like, screaming it, with the marketing campaign? It's kind of like screaming into a well of other programs? Um, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And, you know, the challenge for a lot of networks now um, and content owners is how to reach people. And so if you think about the number of people in the United States in the last five years, it hasn't increased that substantially. Like the number of households with TVs, I think are 100 plus million, 110 million or something. Um, now more and more people have tablets and smartphones, laptops, things like that. So there's there's exponentially more distribution platforms than ever before, but there's still almost the same amount of people that have been here. Mm -hmm. So it's the audience is getting more fragmented and it's it's more and more challenging for these marketers to reach these people. And so, therefore, the campaign has to be a lot, uh, a lot more smart really, marketing. Smart marketing, targeted marketing, um, 
you know, using social media, trying to tap into certain things that the target audience is interested in. Do you think that this is also giving us a new love for also some cla uh, some classics and stuff, especially the the revisionings of a lot of the works that we've known for many many years? Um, yeah, I think because of the, because there are so many platforms and there's so many people that are really um, interested in television and watching television because there's been such so much great stuff on the air over the last five or so years, um, mm -hmm. you know, now there's more and more, um, producers and financiers who are, you know, funding content and, you know, wanting to, to reach people. And they're looking at books and old movies and things like that to try to redevelop. And what about things like those festivals like Comic-Con and Vision-Con and other cons that are now starting to put people into the forefront? Do you feel that that's also helping out with these, uh, with getting the word out about different programs? Oh, yeah, for sure. There, uh, I remember 10 years ago, Comic-Con, it was popular, but it was nothing back then what it's become now. Um, and it's a huge opportunity for networks and studios to to um, show the clips of their movies and their TV shows in front of this audience that is rabid and this fan base that is so passionate about these kinds of movies. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, 10 years ago, you'd go to an event in New York City or, or L.A. that was sponsored by a liquor company, and they would only have people that they would call influencers, you know, mm -hmm. wealthy people, socialites, you know, um, um, people who are kind of in the quote-unquote in crowd, right? Yes. And none of the none of the Comic Con people would ever be invited to any of those events. Now the tables have turned a little bit. The Comic Con crowd are the influencers. They're the ones that the marketers are really trying to reach, because they're the ones who will go out and not only go see the movie or the TV show, but they'll evangelize about it. They'll write about it. They'll go into chat rooms. They'll buy T-shirts and toys and things like that, or they'll go see the movie three or four times. So it's it's completely changed a little bit that a lot of the people who were called the freaks and geeks back then have so much power because you know the studios and the marketers are trying to reach them because they're the ones who are going to the movies three or four times each. Self-described natural geek. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yep. I am a natural geek. Yep. And it's like, do you also view places like the AFM and other markets as well uh, with regarding to the aspects? Do you find them just as helpful in that, in being able to educate people on this? Yeah, there's, yeah, for sure. There's, there's good, um, you know, there's great festivals like Sundance, Toronto, um, Berlin, um, Telluride, um, you know, some of the bigger festivals. And then there's markets like AFM and obviously Con, which is a festival and a market where, you know, there's there's people who are buying and selling and trying to put financing together for projects. Most of the festivals like Sundance or Toronto, you're really going to see a completed film. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas like AFM or Con, it's, it, it's both to see completed films and to talk with people who are putting projects together 
and it's like is it helping towards educating people into what exactly is coming is the next millennium like is including virtual reality a little bit there's definitely more virtual reality projects being discussed it's it is for sure the next wave of uh entertainment um i think by the end of 2016 from what i read there may be about 16 to 20 million um vr head uh headsets in the united Mm -hmm. states and that number will quadruple in like every two or three years it's going to really grow pretty rapidly and most of the people who get them will probably be gamers at first Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, so that's where a lot of the content is going to be focused on, uh, on the gamer crowd. Uh, and then after that, hopefully it will go more into the general public. Very cool. Cause yeah, it's pretty it, cool. VR yeah. space is interesting. So what are you hoping to, uh, that's going to be the next trend for you? Um, moving forward into the, the future. Yeah. I've been really focusing on international co-productions and, and working okay. with, um, Canadian and British and German and French producers uh, and networks to try to develop shows that I can then bring back to the United States under this acquisition model that I had talked about. Um, and that that process, it's a longer process um, than the traditional U.S. studio route, but it, it allows me and my partners to own the show to basically become the studio not to partner with the studio. I'm fine partnering with the studio, but I'd much rather see if I can put a show together that I own a, a real piece of. So being able to have that, uh, the idea of being able to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and, and also really benefit in its success if it, if it works. And also, it's like so. Here's an interesting thing. What would you want? To, uh, what advice would you want to give to the up and coming filmmaker and to the seasoned filmmaker? So up and coming. Um, when you say filmmaker, uh, a director or, to, or writer? Yeah. Um, both director, okay. writer, and so I'll start uh, with the writer. Television, uh, television or filmmaker, the up and coming one. Yeah. So um, if you're an up and coming writer, start by writing what you know. Um, I think that's a really uh, great place to begin your career. Um, and then see if you can get your script read by either an agent or a manager. Um, and one way to go about doing that is look, there's, there's screenplay competitions all over the country in every state, every major city, whether it's through a film program or a um, a television program at a university or um, through like one of the city's film commission offices. There's always different screenplay um, competitions out there and just send your material out and see if you can get into one of them because that's a good way to get noticed. Um, And then if you're a filmmaker, um, just go out and shoot something really unique to give someone a sense of your visual style. And it could be a short film. It could be um, a spec commercial for something, for a product. Uh, It could be a segment of a movie you want, or a TV show you want to make, a scene or two. Just do something that really can show, you know, what your talents are and um, 
what your visual style is. And for writers, definitely make sure you register everything with the Writers Guild of America, either the East Coast or the West Coast branch. That's crucial. Okay. Very, uh, very cool. And so for the actual th and for a seasoned person, what would you be telling them? Um, right now, everybody's in the television business, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, I like to zig when people are zagging. And I yes. actually think the film business is going to come back, but differently than it was in the past. Um, so I, I think there's going to be more films, kind of mid mid budget range films being made in the coming years. Films mm -hmm. in the ten to thirty million dollar range, thrillers, suspense, action, things like that. Um, people should know that a lot of financing for these movies comes from overseas. So if you're going to do a period costume drama, um, some of those are very hard to raise money for. But if you're going to do something like Taken or a horror film. They're easier because you can you could dub that into any language around the world for the most part um, and sell it. So uh, if you're a seasoned person, just keep doing what you're doing and um, you know follow your passion. And Todd, how do people get you in social media? As how are they able to contact you? I'm on LinkedIn. Through LinkedIn. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. Is uh, and you would prefer though that they contact you uh, via email, correct? Yeah, LinkedIn's fine. Excellent. And Olaf, how do people get in touch with you? Well, you can stalk me on both Facebook and Twitter at Olaf Barbosa. But uh, as I always say, don't stalk too close because I do get a little nervous and I do have an itchy trigger finger. Yep. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> it's like I've seen it. It's it's very very scary. <laughs> and with me, it's like you can get me in through LinkedIn, Bizipedia, um, Facebook, Twitter at Movie Time Indie, as well as also at Sonata Grayson, as well as uh, <coughs> goodness, uh, bless you. And Thanks. our website, www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net. Um, gosh, like I've said a million times, if you can't find me on the internet, you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> and also, Todd, is there some? Uh, is there a future project that you'd like to let us know about? Um, yeah, I have a bunch in development. The one I think I'm most excited about right now is called Wanted. And it's a one-hour um, kind of procedural suspense show about a female uh, U.S. Marshal who chases fugitives. And she's got an interesting backstory in that when she was younger, her parents were fugitives and her dad's still on the run. So every week she's going to, you know, there'll be kind of the bad guy of the week, but then she's also going to be trying to find information about her dad's whereabouts. Very cool. Yeah, it's really good. I'm psyched about it. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a very interesting, very interesting show. Thanks. I'm gonna look forward to seeing that. Yep. So hopefully on the air next year, we'll see. Yep. Oh, and I to say hi from Strath from, uh, to you as well, Strath. Oh, Hamilton. great. Good stuff. <laughs> Love him. Yeah, it's like I, I know that the two of you worked together in the past. Yeah, he's great. He really, really is. 
And thank you ever so much, Todd, for being My our pleasure. most amazing guest. All right, guys. Have a good one. You too. Take Thanks. care. Bye. Bye-bye.